0: Alright, we are in Isaiah chapter 61, I'll bring my computer up and uh, we will draw our attention to another trio of prophecies as this will conclude our series in Messianic prophecies. There are many, many more and really we are just doing a, a survey of Messianic prophecies and we, we could again... Go to several more passages, but we have been uh, focusing on some uh, Old Testament passages that speak of the Messiah, and we did uh, springboard from uh, Luke chapter one when we talked about day spring, and then uh, we went through Scripture looking at uh, Jesus being the light of the world. We'll touch on that again in the morning service, but today we'll look again in the book of Isaiah, where we often see Christ and his particular book being the book that has the most Messianic prophecies. On Wednesday night, we talked about Zechariah, the minor prophet Zechariah, being the Old Testament book with the second most Old Testament prophecies. Isaiah with, excuse me, Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. Zechariah being second, Isaiah being first. 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah. Zechariah only has 14, yet has the second most Messianic prophecies. So we'll see briefly today in these three passages, Isaiah 61, 42, and 35, we'll see the Messiah's message, ministry, and miracles. Again, for our understanding, the Old Testament prophets, they would often see two mountain peaks as God revealed his word to them. They, in their human minds, they would often see the first coming as the first mountain peak, and beyond that to the second mountain peak, Christ's second coming. Of course, what is the valley in between? We would describe it as the church age. Of course, the cross is there. Maybe this helps us a little bit in uh, their understanding. And so the church age is even described as a mystery in the New Testament. And that doesn't mean that it's some spooky uh I don't know, Halloween type of mystery. Mystery in the sense that a previously unrevealed truth or a truth that was hidden to the understanding of man and then later revealed in greater fullness. And so the church would be a mystery many times in the understanding, in the full understanding of the Old Testament prophets. But they would see these two mountain peaks. And we'll see that here in Isaiah 61, 35, and 42, where there are references to the first coming. And literally, in the middle of the verse, there will be a shift to a prophecy of the second coming of Christ. So let's begin in Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness that they might be called trees of righteousness the planting of the Lord that he might be glorified. We see first of all here the Messiah's message in giving us the context we know that in Luke chapter number 4 Jesus literally will read in the synagogue from this very passage. In Luke 4 Near the beginning of Jesus' public ministry there in Galilee at his hometown synagogue in Nazareth, he reads a portion from Isaiah 61. When he had finished, he closes the scroll, what would have been a scroll more than likely, and he says, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. That's Luke 4 and verse 21. Here Christ reads from this very passage in Isaiah. And notice in verse number 1, we see the doctrine of the Trinity. Isaiah 61, verse 1, the Spirit of the Lord God. We see the Holy Spirit, and we see God the Father is upon me. Who's the me? That's Jesus. We see the Trinity in Isaiah 61, verse 1. We see that this phrase anointed me is used in verse one, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings. When Jesus applied this passage to himself, when he read, because the Lord hath anointed me, he is making a declaration of himself as the Messiah, the king, the anointed one. Who, who else could come to a synagogue, open up the scroll to Isaiah 61 and read authoritatively without hypocrisy and apply Isaiah 61 to himself? And to do so, again, with no hypocrisy, with no guile, with no trickery, Openly, publicly declaring himself as the fulfillment of Isaiah 61 in verse number 1. That's incredible. It, 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 again, goes to show the clear pronouncement and clear understanding that Christ is the Messiah. That he is God in the flesh. And we celebrate the birth of Christ Rightly so, uh, this Christmas season, tomorrow in particular as Christmas Day. But Christ declared himself on more than one occasion as God in the flesh. In one of the later passages that we even looked at and as we were preaching through the book of John, when the Jews recognized, when he called himself the Son of God, making himself equal with God, what did the Jews do? Derek picked up stones. They saw it as blasphemy, and they looked at the Mosaic law and said, "He needs to die." They picked up stones, and he walked through the midst of them. I believe they do the same in Luke four here, as he uh, leaves the synagogue. They were taking up stones, if I remember right, uh, to to stone him. They understood the declaration that Christ is the Messiah. He is God in the flesh. It's the willing ignorance of man to suppress this truth. Uh, we were at the, the the Ark Encounter Creation Museum. It's kind of an annual thing that we do as a family, and uh, we went down and enjoyed uh, going through, uh, particularly the Ark. The, the Creation Museum was the main exhibits were closed by the time we got there. But uh, anyway, we were in one section of the Ark, and there was there was one exhibit. And uh, Josiah and I were walking through, and it it talked about how there is a speculation that there was a flood on Mars. Now, take it, man has never been to Mars. I know Elon Musk, that's his next dream, right? Get to Mars. There's speculation that there was a flood on Mars, and the scientists are like, yeah, yeah. There had to have been because there's, I don't know, some sort of evidence of water. I don't, I'm not sure what all. But the idea that there was a worldwide flood on the earth is rejected. And I love the point that was made on the display. The only reason that man rejects the worldwide flood is because God says so in the word of God, and man hates God in his word and rejects God and his son, Jesus Christ. So therefore, the idea of a flood A worldwide flood on the earth is preposterous, but a flood on Mars that we've never been to? Oh yeah, that's science, right? Science. (laughs) The willing suppression of the truth when the evidence is right there in front of our faces. It just goes to show the sinful, rebellious heart of man. But here Jesus proclaims himself as the anointed one, quoting reading from. And applying Isaiah 61, verse 1, to himself. And a third reason that we know that this must apply to Jesus, not only did Jesus apply it to himself, Christ, Messiah, Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. Christ means anointed. But Israel never did the things that are mentioned in this passage. This has to be a Messianic prophecy. This has to be Fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who is God, the God-man. And what is this message that we read here in Isaiah 61, that Jesus preached? He preached this message of deliverance in four ways, or to four groups of people. Notice, first of all, he preached the gospel, good tidings. Because the Lord hath anointed me, verse 1 of Isaiah 61, to preach good tidings unto the meek. So the gospel is the good news. The good news specifically is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the good news generally is the word of God. The Bible is good news to man. And there are good tidings that Jesus preaches. Clearly he fulfilled this in his earthly ministry and through his prophets and Uh, Through his people that he is called to evangelize and to proclaim the truth. But specifically, Jesus Christ fulfilled this prophecy in that he published, he proclaimed, he preached the good news. And notice that it's to the meek. Who are the meek? The humble. Because it's the humble, ultimately, who receive the gospel, the truth. Because the gospel requires humility. Poverty of spirit. Those that mourn, as we read in Matthew 5, The contrite heart, the broken and the contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden. Revelation 22, those that thirst, take of the water. What is the problem with man? Because of his sin, his pride, his rebellion? He will not thirst after God like he should. He will not humble himself. This is where the crux of the gospel ultimately hits home. And I'm going to emphasize a little something here without trying to be overly critical of of other churches. That's That's not what I'm really trying to do here. But what I'm concerned about in the pragmatism of many churches today is that there is such an emphasis on belief and faith, which is obviously necessary, okay? Salvation is by faith alone and Christ alone. But there's such an emphasis on faith and belief to the detriment of repentance and brokenness over sin and humility in us in our rebellion being broken before a holy God and bowing in submission to him, that I believe sometimes the hard truths of the gospel get gutted out. So people will want to add Jesus on instead of Jesus becoming their all in all. Christ takes our life. We are crucified with him, Paul says. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. We want to add Jesus on. Oh, yeah, I want to believe in Jesus. We can call it easy believism, whatever we want to call it. But it greatly concerns me that people, yes, is the gospel good news? Sure it is. But there's a hard truth that we are sinners, that we give up everything, like the pearl of great price that is sought after. We give up everything for Christ. He is our all in all but so many people just want to add Jesus on and it feeds a pragmatism in the church and the gospel becomes a commodity to sell. Who doesn't want to punch a ticket to heaven? Hey, you want to go to heaven? All right, here's the the ticket and it's free. We'll punch the ticket, come on in. Why why does that not work so just, why why, why is, yes, the gospel is a free gift, but why do we not just say, hey, come on, free gift, and make it a very lighthearted, easy believism. Why do we emphasize these hard truths about sin and repentance? Go ahead and give me some feedback. Carl? Without repentance, you can't really have true faith. In exactly. Faith in God. Exactly. If I don't see myself as a needy sinner, if I don't see myself broken before a holy God, Why do I need salvation? Why can't I just add Jesus on like a diet plan, an exercise program? Take him like a pill in my cabinet to solve my woes and my weariness and my other issues. Because if I don't see myself as a sinner, why do I need him as my savior? If I'm not broken over my sin, then what's what's the point? Anybody can want a free, you know, you go to the stores nowadays, We were at the store looking for some stocking stuffers for the kids, and it's buy, no, it's buy one, get two free. Wow, who doesn't like free stuff, right? But we all know there is no such thing as a free lunch. Well, the free gift of salvation, we know, was not free to God. He sent his son, Jesus Christ. It cost him his son. But in the sense of our own selves and our sin, we have to confess our sin, we have to come before a holy God in humility, in meekness, broken, mourning over our sin with poverty of spirit. And what did Jesus say to the religious leaders when they, or excuse me, what did John the Baptist say to the religious leaders when they came to be baptized? What did John the Baptist tell him? What was that, role? Oh, Brut vipers. vipers. Judging. How could John the Baptist be such a judgment? I mean... What a judge, right? That was that was just no judging, just Jesus. But he called him a brood of vipers, and he said, "What, Nat?" Bring me works mean for repentance. Exactly, exactly. Show me fruits of your repentance. Oh yeah, they'd be dunked in the river and go on their way and keep on in their animosity toward Jesus. But Jordan, uh, excuse me, John, was like, "I'm not dunking you in the Jordan until there's fruit of repentance in one's life." So we really need to understand there's good tidings. Yes, it's good news, but it's good news for sinful man, unworthy man. We've got to see the brokenness of our lives. We've got to see the sinfulness. Do we not see people who are unsaved that we're burdened for, that we're praying for, that we're pleading for? We pray for them that God would bring them to repentance. And usually there is something that they're holding on to in their pride just as any of us before we trusted Christ as our Savior. What were we holding on to? My position, my status, a particular sin. I'm not going to believe that because then that identifies me with, right? All these different areas, money, the love of money is the root of all evil. We know that it is hard for a rich man to enter into heaven because why would he need God when he's got all the wealth and the riches and we have seen the fruit of that in our culture, haven't we? The materialism and people who have it all, but they have lost their own soul to have the things of the world. So man is holding on to what he thinks will save him. His own good works, whatever it is, his status. When Christ preaches good tidings, the good news to the meek, to the humble, the broken. And then he says, heal the brokenhearted." bind up, excuse me, bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. These are, yes, can be applied to physical or material, uh, even to health uh, type of issues, but the primary application for the brokenhearted, the captive, is the spiritually... Held captive. Yes, there are those who are in sorrow over uh, whatever the circumstance may be, but it is a message that the brokenhearted, broken before God, yes, there's an immediate reference in the context to their. Brokenness over what in Isaiah 61, there would be the Babylonian captivity, there would be the oppression of these foreign nations, there's a desire to have that removed for them to be brought back. And yes, there would be that deliverance and that salvation in the physical sense after the years of captivity where they'd be brought back. And yes, there's a context and an application there. But they wouldn't come back to the promised land. until there was a brokenness over their sin. And a repentance and a willingness to see. And isn't that sometimes what it takes for God to get our attention? We got some of us are so stubborn, we got to go through some pretty hard knocks, don't we? God has to shake us up through some pretty hard circumstances, some pretty severe issues for us to realize I, I need to get right with God. I need to confess my sin. I need to trust Christ fully. And the brokenhearted, yes, there is some physical, there are some material, there is a national even application for Israel, but there is that spiritual brokenness that we must have. That's part of the binding up, the healing that God brings as we are broken before Him. The liberty to the captive. Here's where we get into all the justice and the social justice talk, right? <laughs> And I, I follow somebody who is a graduate of our Christian school from years ago. And I've, I, I follow this individual just, it, it irritates me. But I follow this individual because I want to see how a Christian who has now bought into all this so-called Christian, graduate of our school, grew up in a good Christian family. I know this family well. I, I want to see what it is that makes her buy into this social justice philosophy to the point that she's posting things in support of Hamas and the Palestinians. The um, whole, anyway. I'm like, how did she buy into that whole critical theory? What happened? Well, she's bought into this social justice. Now she's posting things that basically remake the gospel into a social justice. And it's all about This critical theory stuff. That's what Christ brought in bringing liberty to the captives. He brought critical theory and critical race theory. But that's what we even have churches today. We have people today. That's what they are proclaiming. We have institutions overrun around our country. And it's all based on critical theory. Oppressor versus oppressed. And a president of what used to be a good institution, Harvard was founded to train preachers in the 1600s. Harvard wouldn't train a preacher worth a grain of salt now. But because the president meets certain intersection categories, plagiarism is okay, genocide is okay. Is that the liberty that Christ brought? He brought liberty from what? From our sin. We're captives to our sin. We're slaves. Literally, Israel, because of their sin, will be slaves to the Babylonians and eventually the Persians before they are allowed to return. They are going to literally, and they're experiencing soon, not only have they had attacks by the Assyrians, but the Babylonians are coming and there's going to be literal captivity, but there is a message of Freedom from sin. As people think about Christmas, they want an innocent little baby in a manger. Cuddle, hold close, pat on the back, back, sweet, burp, and a little baby sounds. That, to the unsaved, that is non-threatening. But when we preach the message of Christ who confronts sin... That's a different Jesus. They want to remake him into a different Jesus so you can go to the grocery store now and you can buy a magazine at Payless with a bunch of, can I just say, ignorant authors writing and they have on the headline the real Jesus. I'm going to pick up a news magazine by a bunch of liberal, educated Unbelievers, and I'm gonna find the real Jesus in a magazine in the grocery store aisle. <laughs> the real Jesus is proclaimed right here. He lived, he was born, he lived, and he preached on this earth and died on the cross for our sins and rose again to seat at the right hand of the throne of, of God. He preached and proclaimed this liberty to the captive. He opened prison to them that are bound. And he proclaimed the acceptable year of the Lord. And what did Jesus say in Luke 4 and verse 21? When was that scripture fulfilled? Right now, today. So as we celebrate Christmas tomorrow, the baby in the manger in Bethlehem is the Savior, the God-man, incarnate God, the acceptable year of the Lord. I know the reference specifically today in that immediate context but this is the time of the Messiah who has come. And Jesus is proclaiming that early in his ministry. He is claiming fulfillment of this prophecy from Isaiah 61. Now, verse 2, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And he stops there, and then he says, This day, today, is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. As he's beginning his earthly ministry. okay? Why did he not go on to verse 2? The second part, excuse me, of verse 2. What's the second part of verse 2 talk about? Exactly. The day of vengeance. When's the day of vengeance going to take place? At the second coming. When he comes again and there's the battle of Armageddon. And he establishes the millennial kingdom. He stops at the middle of verse 2 because the second half has to do with his second coming. He he did not come at that time, in that place, in that kind of ministry of vengeance. Though he will come again, and there will be that ministry of vengeance. As he brings justice upon the world and speaks, and the armies of the Antichrist are destroyed. So he brings a message of judgment, and then to comfort, excuse me, a message of comfort in the second half, or the third half, I should say, third part of verse 2, to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. Were there some near fulfillments of that in the sense of people getting saved and their being restoration of lives, sure. But where is the full fulfillment of 2C through verse 3? Where is that? It began in verse 2B, the middle part of verse 2, the day of vengeance. So what is the rest of that referring to? The millennial kingdom and into the eternal kingdom and the restoration of Israel, Zechariah 12 and 13, Romans 11, 25 through 27. So he's ultimately pointing to the second coming, though there's fulfillment in Verse 1, in the first part of verse 2, fulfilled right then and there in the person of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who will fulfill the rest of that as well in a future coming in the millennial kingdom and into eternity. And even a reference there to the restoration of Israel. Specific promise concerning Israel. That their ashes will be turned into beauty. Their mourning will have oil for joy. The spirit of heaviness will be replaced with a garment of praise, and they will be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. So that's the Messiah's message. And then we see the Messiah's ministry. Now let's go over to Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42. We've been in Isaiah 61. Let's go over to Isaiah 42, another Messianic prophecy. We see in verse 1 that his ministry is characterized by justice. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, and whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him, he, hath, he shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. There will be justice. Matthew 12 and verse 18, Jesus quotes Isaiah 42, 1 and applies it. Excuse me, Matthew applies. Chapter 12 and verse 18 of his gospel. He quotes Isaiah 42, 1 and applies it to Christ it's specifically during the Millennial Kingdom that Christ will bring justice to the world, particularly to the Gentiles. Christ will bring justice to the world. He shall bring forth judgment or justice to the Gentiles. So there is a day of reckoning. And again, it appears sometimes that Putin and Iran and... Kim Jong-un in North Korea, and what's his name in China? What's his name again? Xi Xi Jinping. It, It appears in their minds, in their unsaved minds, in their rejection of God and his sovereignty and his providence and of his son Jesus Christ, they think that they are the ones who are going to remake the world for their personal pleasures, economics, domination, power, And they're fools. They're in rejection and rebellion. Just like Caesar Augustus we talked about last week. And Herod the Great, who thinks he can slay the two-year-olds and younger, the male's two-year-old and younger. and Get rid of this king that's going to threaten him. Foolish, violent, power-hungry, bloodthirsty individuals. And we see the promise that the Messiah will come and he will bring justice, judgment to the Gentiles. There will be a day of reckoning. And this justice will also mean that many of us Gentiles will enter into glory, saved. That though the Jews rejected Christ, now the church has the responsibility of taking the gospel to the uttermost parts of the world. We as Gentiles are grafted in, we are brought into the kingdom. There's justice in the sense of judgment upon the evil, those who rejected Christ. And there's justice in the sense that we undeserving sinners, Gentiles, outside of the people of, Christ, of people of God, outside the children of Israel, we are brought into God's kingdom. And we see the light of the Gentiles in Jesus Christ. So we see justice. And then we also see humility. He shall not cry nor lift up nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. Jesus didn't come with a political campaign. He didn't come with big news conferences. He didn't come and sell tickets to live performances at the Roman Amphitorium, right? He didn't come and make some big concert and draw some big crowd to some ticket selling venue. Were those places around? Were there opportunities? Did he go and did he say, well, I'm going I'm to go and I'm going to transform the Roman culture by taking over all of their popular venues and I'm going to sanctify those and turn them over to, to my authority. Is that what he did? Where did he go? He went to the Sea of Galilee and stood in a boat and preached. And the multitudes came. He fed them with what? A little boy's lunch. Five loaves and two fish. Fishes. <laughs> isn't that a, isn't, that's not grammar, grammatically correct. Fishes? Fish? Anyway, five loaves and two fish, right? He, he went about as just an ordinary person. He called unto himself twelve ordinary men, some of whom would even be rejects by He came in humility. There's nothing about his life that exalted himself in any kind of pride, any kind of pompous. I'm not saying it's wrong to sell tickets to an arena, to a concert, to a venue. But it does, doesn't it seem like that is what the emphasis is now? I'm not saying it's wrong to go to a good Christian movie at the, at the movie theater or something. Okay, I'm not saying it's wrong necessarily to enjoy a good entertainment, clean entertainment, a good documentary. I, again, I'm not trying to get into that. But it's almost like, it's almost like, oh, if we, if we can, and this is in, in this uh, new apostolic reformation, there's one group in that I use the term Christian nationalism very loosely, okay, because if you so much as claim to be a Christian now, they call you a Christian nationalist, right? But there's a movement within that broader group I believe it 's seven principles. you have to take over seven areas of culture, and if we conquer all seven of those areas of culture, then we will be victorious for Christ here on earth. I think is it, is it should we be producing good Christian films? Sure. Should we have a clean form of entertainment? Sure. I mean, I get tired of the vulgarity that 's on television and commercials nowadays. they swear in the commercials. Look at the commercials now in between the ball games. I have to mute because you never know what they're gonna say, and then half of the medical commercials, it seems like, are lesbians and, and, and gay couples now, and they're selling the hepatitis A and the HIV medicines, and suppose you can go out and just keep living immorally and just take a pill, right? I mean, and then there's the alcohol. Go out and booze it up and get drunk, and you're gonna have a great old time this Christmas. That's what, right? Should we have an impact on our culture that changes the way people live and their choices, sure. But Jesus didn't come to take over the Roman and the Greek venues of public place. He didn't come as a political leader. He came in humility. He walked among ordinary people like you and me. He called unto himself ordinary people, many of whom were even rejects from ordinary society. He came in humility. He took upon him the form of a servant and found himself and was made in fashion as a man and humbled himself. And then he died as a what? What What was the comparison? As he died on the cross, who was normally crucified? Thieves, robbers. The Romans would make an embarrassment of them. He died the death of a common criminal in shame according humanly speaking in shame and he did so for you and for me his whole ministry was characterized by humility by gentleness verse 3 a bruised reed shall he not break and the smoking flax shall he not quench he shall bring forth judgment and the truth he shall not fail nor be discouraged till he has till he have set judgment in the earth and the isle shall wait for his law what was his success ticket sales Net worth? Buying out all the different Roman real estate so that he could have an earthly kingdom unto himself? What, what was his success? Nat? Well, the, the ultimate success was the cross. Exactly. Victory over sin and death and the grave. Victory over Satan. And we are the recipients of that can i can i say in the in the right sense of the word we are his success story in the sense that he saves us in that he propitiated the father satisfied the wrath the the justice the holiness of the father there had to be an atonement for sin the atonement could have been us not the atonement the punishment the penalty could have been us in hell forever us paying for our sin for eternity But he made the payment, paid the penalty, paid the price for us. Was there success? Satisfied the wrath of God? Called us unto himself? That we might be kings and priests with him, that we would be with him in glory? But that's not how the world, (laughs) that's not the world's measures for success, is it? it? It's totally opposite of what the world says. What does verses 5 and 6 reference by universality? In other words, even the Gentiles. Again, there's a reference in those verses to the Gentiles. Every people, tongue, tribe, and nation, if we were to go to the book of Revelation. And then verse 7, to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison, and then that sit in darkness out of the prison house. Once again, we see deliverance. We're coming down to the end here, and we'll just quickly turn over to Isaiah chapter 35. Isaiah chapter 35. And just two brief points here. Verses 3 through 6. Isaiah 35 verses 3 through 6. It's interesting that Matthew says in chapter 7 and verse 29 of his gospel that Jesus taught with power. He taught with power. And The next two chapters in the book of Matthew, he records 10 miracles. So in Isaiah 35, in verses 3 through 6, Isaiah 35, verse 3, Strengthen ye the weak hands, and confirm the feeble knees. Say to them that are of a fearful heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. Even God, with a recompense, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as in heart and the tongue of the dumb sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out and streams in the deserts. Did Jesus perform miracles, healings? Sure he did. But where will the ultimate fulfillment of all of that healing take place? In the millennial kingdom in the heavenly kingdom. When all tears are wiped away, there's no more sorrow, no more death, no more crying. So it's interesting That in Matthew 11, John the Baptist was struggling. Sent a messenger out to Jesus from prison. And what did Jesus respond with? He took Isaiah 35, 5 and 6, and he summarized it and said to that messenger, take this message back to John the Baptist. And what did he say? Jesus summarized these two verses then the eyes of the blind shall be open the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped then shall the lame man leap as in heart and the tongue of the dumb sing for in the wilderness shall waters break out and streams in the desert what did he say to John the Baptist has the Messiah, has the Messiah that you preached fulfilled these promises, these promises these prophecies yes be assured John have faith John He gave him assurance with the promises, the prophecies. He gave John assurance with the word of God fulfilled. Can we not take that same assurance right now? As we live out the Christian life and look forward to his second coming and we celebrate his first coming. Can we not take those same assurances, claim the same promises that as God fulfilled the prophecies in Jesus Christ at his first coming, that he will fulfill them in his second coming? And that what we have believed, as much as it is attacked, as much as it is under pressure from even the inside as well as the outside, we can have full confidence and full assurance that we know whom we have believed and am persuaded that he is able to, to keep that which he has promised. So as as we come to a conclusion here at the end of the book of John, and thinking about the miracles and the power, how did John conclude in verse 31, many other signs, verse 30 of John 20, and many other signs, truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing he might have life through his name. And that's the message, that's the gospel, that's the good tidings, the good news that we continue to declare. I know we just quickly went through these three passages and these prophecies, but I hope they have been an encouragement to us. Uh, We're going to get ready now for the service. I'm going to ask uh, uh, Jerry Spencer if he'll close us in a word of prayer, and uh, then we'll get ready for the service. Go ahead, Jerry. Amen. Thank you for being here. We'll uh, get things turned around up here and get ready for the service to start in about 15, 16 minutes.